0: Okay, uh, we are, uh, we're, we're plugging away in John. So we're in John 14. Uh, tonight, we're going to just get down to verse 8. Um, I believe is all that we're going to make it to, but that's okay. John 14 is a, a really famous passage. I'm sure you guys have heard it before. Uh, in, in John 14, in this part, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Y'all, y'all have heard that before? The way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Um, so, very, very famous passage. This is... Uh, I think, so uh, so I've been was a youth pastor for a few years, been doing this for two years. I think this is the first time I've ever got to preach a sermon twice, so it sort of feels good. This week felt good. It wasn't super heavy. I didn't have a ton of prep to do. It was really nice. So so if y'all were here this summer on Sunday morning, well, you're going to get blessed with hearing a sermon twice. It's going to be a real blessing. So, uh, but for me, it's great. It's great. So... John 14. Um, yeah, let me give you sort the lay of the land for, for tonight. Um, because this verse is so well-known, it is probably so well misinterpreted. Can you say that? Yeah, you can say that. Uh, because it's so well-known, we probably take it out of context really easily. Uh, and when we take it out of context in that way, uh, we pin meaning on it and we subtract meaning from it. And so... Uh, all that it's meant to say is lost uh, because we we tend to overuse it and we tend to overuse it in the wrong context. And so, because this text deals with salvation, I'm going to spend uh, a little bit of time deconstructing and reconstructing our view of salvation. I believe that's going to be very necessary, and I think after we lay some groundwork, I'm going to do a bit more intro tonight than normal, Uh, so... Just look forward to that. It's gonna be like old times. I used to give like forty-five minutes of introduction and like eight minutes of text, but I'm improving. Uh, so uh, we're gonna spend some time laying groundwork, and then I think after we get proper groundwork and we contextualize this a bit, uh, then it'll just explain itself, really, and that's my hope for tonight. Uh, and then we will land the plane and apply uh, it, what it's saying to you know to life. So um, so when I say I want to deconstruct and reconstruct salvation. Uh, my, my, my fear is is that most of y'all view salvation in the way that I viewed salvation most of my life and how it's typically presented within the, 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 the cultural context of the United States. And the way that, they, that salvation is probably presented to you uh, is Jesus died on a cross and if you accept him into your heart, you'll go to heaven when you die. Before you die, you should probably go to church and follow some rules. And that's sort of. And we don't say that last part, but that's sort of what we think. The first part is probably presented in that way. You accept Jesus in your heart, you go to heaven when you die, yay. Uh, and then that, that's it. That's sort of the end of the story. Uh, what, well, let me just say, uh, because we don't have, I use this word too much, we don't have a robust view of what Jesus actually did. We don't have a robust view of the salvation going to say this word either the salvific work of god throughout the history of the world uh and throughout the history of mankind we don't have a robust view of that uh what happens is it, it seems and it sounds like jesus died for me to go to heaven and i even heard this said when i was young like if you were the only person on earth jesus would have died for you and while that's not wrong it's wrong it's completely misguided It's completely misguided. Let's say that. Uh, So I want to, when we don't have this robust view of what Jesus did, uh, we tend to walk in a powerless life uh, because when when we just view Jesus as this guy who saves me and takes me to heaven one day, it doesn't really say much about what God has been doing in history, and then it really doesn't say much about what God does in your life today, and then it doesn't really say much about how that connects, like, you to me and you to the person next to you. It doesn't really show you how that connects the people of God together. What that says really is God loves you so much that he wants you to go to heaven. And it, it's just so, well, like I said, I've said this before, like it's, it's not wrong, but it's only like 12% right. Um, and it leads to, it, it just leads to a weak, weak Christianity because we our view of everything is so very shallow. And because our, cons- our culture is consumeristic, we can very easily make our Christianity consumeristic. We can really easy, because culture is constantly telling you that you're the most important person in the world uh, and that they want to curtail everything to you. Like you turn on TV and you're watching a show and every 12 minutes or so, there, here comes a string of commercials that say, you are so important And you are the center of the world. And we want to please you. We want to make you happy. And so it's this constant driving towards us being the center of the world, the consumer being the most important person in the world. Me, 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 me. Uh, It just jumps into Christianity. And and so uh, what I'm going to do tonight is I think for the last six or seven weeks, we've really been like... You may have felt this and you may not have. It depends on if you sleep while you're in here. Uh, But if you haven't slept, it may have felt like I'm sort of raking you over the coals a bit. Like the text is just constantly driving repentance, 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 repentance. Uh, And I know you feel that a bit. And then so the next week, we're really like digging in deep into the application of the text. And we spent a ton of time on application last week. Uh, This week, we're going to pull way back. Uh, I think it's really helpful that we pull way back And look at the big picture. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at the big picture. Um, So uh, I deconstructed a bit. So let's reconstruct now. And I'm going to reconstruct. Sorry. But I'm going to reconstruct by giving you the history of the Old Testament. But I'm going to do it so fast. And then when I get done, you're going to be like, wow. He did that so fast. I'm not bored. Uh, I don't feel mad at him. You're going to think all those things. Um, So. Uh, Let's look at it like this. Uh, I love Genesis. If we talk for more than 10 minutes, we're going to talk about Genesis. Uh, So Genesis 1 and 2, beautiful, beautiful picture that uh, is very short, and there's not a lot of explanation, but it's this beautiful picture of God wanting to express all that he is. And so he creates the world, and he creates trees. He creates mountains and butterflies and rocks and uh, lizards and other things. And all in creating, he's displaying himself. He's displaying I am a god who is creative. I am a god who is beautiful. I'm a god who is powerful. I am so I'm a god who is vast. So you know like Psalm I think it's Psalm 8. Heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim his handiwork. And day after day they pour forth speech. So literally what it's saying is that the stars are actually yelling at you. And night after night they they I can't remember, they don't shut their mouths or something. I think it's probably more beautiful than that. But but that's what it's saying. It's saying the stars are actually telling you something, that God is huge and vast. He's bigger than you can comprehend. He's more beautiful than you can imagine. And so creation itself is actually God, like an artist, putting himself on display. right? And he's just saying, I'm all these things. I'm just, this is glory, right? That's what he does. He creates to show himself off. Um, but then you get this really beautiful part where he creates humans. And humans are different than the rest of creation. They express God in a different way. And he says this by saying that they bear his image. Where nothing else in creation bears his image, humanity does bear his image. And, and, and I think that means a million different things. I think Genesis is so brief in its explanations because it, it, there's so much meaning there. The more they sort of would explain, the I th- honestly, I think the less meaning we would get. But anyway, so he says the image bears, and so I think what part of that means is while the rest of creation can display power, beauty, creativity and all these things, mountains can't display love, Uh, trees can't display grace, the stars can't display mercy. Uh, So he creates these beings who have his image on them and they are to display his character. So while the rest of creation can display his nature, humanity displays character, the character of God. And so What we see very early in Genesis 2 is like God creates man and woman. He creates them in his image. This is very, very good, he says. The rest of creation is good, but humanity is very good. Creates, and then he says, I want you to do something. I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. I want you to be the authoritative stewards of the earth. You are going to be the authoritative steward of the earth. So you are my image, and so you're going to bear my image To the world. And I'm going to say this a lot tonight. A people of God who are alive with God and who cultivate life. That's the best way I can put what God was doing. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this beautiful Trinity that's in love with itself. And is so in love with itself and knows itself and knows itself is so beautiful that it creates beings to experience him and to be with him so you're going to see that explained in Genesis as they you know they walked with God in the cool of the day and you're like so God creates humans and all they do is walk around in the cool of the day but there's so much in that there's so much in that that God wants to be with humanity so he creates a people of God who are alive with God and who cultivate life where they go. So that's what that idea is. He puts them in a garden, but the rest of the world is not a garden. And he's like, here's this garden. Okay, now this is what order from chaos looks like. Now you, as my authoritative stewards, you go fill it. You make babies who bear my image, and babies, and babies, and babies, and then all these babies are going to make the earth like the garden. They're going to take the chaos that exists outside of the garden. So so there was work before the fall. It's just that that work didn't war against you. So this is, that, this is sub, fill the earth and subdue it. So then that last two chapters, and then here come the snake and the tree, and I'm thinking most of you all know the story, but here the snake rolls up and convinces Eve to eat this apple. Not an apple, fruit, that's all we know. Uh, fruit, and then she gives some to her husband, and then they fall, and then what it says is they were... Uh, they saw that they were naked, and they clothed themselves with fig leaves so you 're getting this fall um, you 're getting this this fall from that relationship, so a people who were a people of God are no longer a people of God because they rejected him so basically, in the garden, there was a doorway out of that relationship in the garden, there was a doorway out of the perfect relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There was a doorway out of doing things the way that God had intended them to be done. And that out was this tree in the middle of the garden where humans actually had freedom to live with God or not live with God. And so the humans rejected God. They rejected God's rule over them and they took the doorway out. That's what eating from that tree is about. So they took the doorway out and so they cut relationship with God. And then what you're going to see from Genesis 4 to Genesis 11 is the fallout of that decision. So where they were supposed to be a people of God, alive with God, cultivating life where they go, they're no longer a people of God. And then what happens? Death enters in. That's why God says, don't eat from the tree. You'll surely die. So, so okay, they're no longer a people of God. Now they're no longer alive. They're no longer eternally living. So they're dying now. And then what Genesis 4 to 11 is going to show you, they cannot cultivate life. They've cut themselves off from the source of life. They can no longer cultivate life. So Genesis 4 to 11 is all those really happy stories, uh, those happy stories like Cain killing his brother Abel. So where there's supposed to be this familial unity, there is actually murder. So you're seeing very quickly Cain and Abel's like chapter 4, and then the next thing is God looks at earth. So they've been having babies, but they don't They've been having babies, but these babies don't cultivate life. They actually cultivate death. God looks at the earth, like in chapter 5, and he says, I'm grieved that I made all of this. And so you get that even more happy story of Noah uh, and God drowning the earth. God drowning the earth. Um, I've said this before, but I'm super happy we didn't paint that story on the wall in the children's wing because that story is terrible. Uh, and it seems like whenever you go to a church that does have it painted on the wall, they sort of leave out the drowning people, and they just have this boat with these giraffes. And you're like, well, uh, underneath that water is the entirety of humanity drowning to death. And, and this isn't just a children's story. Wonderful. Uh, so weird, weird. Okay, so you're seeing what I'm saying. Uh, so you're, you're seeing the fallout. Genesis 4 to 11 is specifically uh, the author, Moses, showing the reader, us and the rest of whoever's read the Bible, that the fallout from cutting themselves off from God is actually the inability to cultivate life. It's They're no longer with God, they're no longer alive, and they're also no longer able to cultivate life. They can only cultivate death. So you're getting you know, the Noah, and he's like, okay, you get on a boat, and then when when all that's done, and everybody's thinking, Noah is such a great guy, like, he was so faithful, he built this giant boat, as soon as the boat lands, he plants a vineyard, and gets wasted, and then I think what most people say that the text is saying there, is that his daughter actually sleeps with him, and you're sort of like, how this turned so fast, it was just downhill, like, immediately, so Noah, who was awesome, is now this sort of You know, you're sort of thinking, like, the whole time on the boat, he was just thinking about planting a vineyard and getting a little tipsy when he got off. And so you're seeing Noah. And then as soon as they get off, as soon as that happens, God tells Noah again, okay, we're going to try this again. I've killed everybody because they were so violent and so destructive. They couldn't cultivate life. They could only cultivate death. And so it says, okay, Noah, I want you to uh, fill the earth. And I want you to subdue it. I want you to cultivate life in the same way. So cultivate life. And then the very, like the, the very, I think it's like three verses later, it says, so they gathered together and they built a tower to the heaven so they could glorify their own name. And it was like, no, uh, you were supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. And it's immediately after it, so they gathered together. And they build a tower to heaven so that their name would be great. And you're like, what's going on? This is, this is a terrible story. Genesis 4 to 11 is just a terrible, terrible story after another. And so you're seeing the author being very intentional. And so the Genesis, that's Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And so it's, God actually forces people to fill the earth. This is when he confuses language. Confuses language, the people scatter and you're seeing this really weird verse right there in the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel always confused me, but the Tower of Babel is really important. It's actually one of the most important stories in the Old Testament. And what's going on is God looks at them and he says, nothing, they're so united that nothing that they intend to do will be too hard for them. So, I'm going to confuse their language. And you're thinking like God, like unity's is good. What, what are you doing? Nothing that they intend will be too hard, and the point being that because they can, what Genesis four to ten showed us, they can only cultivate death. So if they unite in that endeavor, they're going to cultivate more death and more violence. So it was actually the grace of God confusing them and saying, "Okay, y'all get away from each other, because when y'all start getting together, you start doing worse things than if, it would been if y'all just sort of had a little tent and a, you know thirty people live together and thirty people over there. But it seems like when y'all gather together, you're actually able to cultivate more death." than you could if you were alone. And so God says, nothing they intend to do will be too difficult. We can't let that happen. Confuses their language and scatters them. And then you're thinking, is he going to drown them again? Well, he can't because he gave the rainbow. Is he going to set the world on fire now? Because these people are ridiculous. Like that's the honest reader would be reading it that way. None of us are honest, so we don't read it that way. Uh, but the honest reader would be like, God, these people are ridiculous. Okay, and then Genesis 12. And then Genesis 12. Maybe the most beautiful story to me, in my opinion, that is in the Old Testament. Instead of God coming to destroy these people who just continually cultivate death, he grabs this one guy, Abram, and he says, I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to make a promise to you that can't be broken. I'm going to make a promise to you that no matter what you do, this promise will come true. So God, who is the all-powerful, the most beautiful, powerful thing in existence, makes a promise to a man. He has now bound himself to his word. So where God was free to do absolutely whatever he wanted, he makes promises on his name whereby he has to do what he said. So now he has to do what he said he's going to do because he has made a covenant on his name. And if God does not come through with that, God is not perfect, is not God so he binds himself to mankind Genesis 12 huge. So instead of destroying he says look I'm going to make a people out of you. I'm going to try this again. Make a people out of you. I'm going to make from you Abraham a people and they're going to be more than the sands of the of the shore and they're going to be more than the stars of the sky and I'm going to give you this land and the whole world is going to be blessed by you. So what the reader would automatically think when they read that part is Okay, a people again who are alive with God, he's going to be different with them is what he says. Like, I'm going to bless you. People who are alive with God, and they're going to cultivate life, and they're going to bless the world again. They're going to make the world right. They're going to fix all this. And then what you get from Genesis 13 until Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, is the failure of the Israelites to bless the world at all. It's actually more like the Israelites turn inward and believe they are special and better than the rest of humanity and that God should only bless them should only love them and so you're getting the opposite of what they were supposed to do so if you see in Matthew 5 Jesus first sermon he says to the Israelites you were supposed to be a salt to the earth and you're supposed to be a light but you weren't that you weren't that And so where it looks like in Genesis 13, oh, we're going to get a people of God who are alive with God who can cultivate life. What you get is a people of God, and they're somehow not alive, and they can't cultivate life either. What the heck is going on? And so you see throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, it's God saying Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. I'm going to send the Assyrians to destroy you because y'all are so bad. But the Messiah is coming. And then, and then I'm going to send the Babylonians to destroy the other part of you that's left because you're so bad. But Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. And the reason Messiah is coming is because there's something there that can't be fixed without Messiah. What is the reason that people can't be alive with God and cultivate life wherever they go? And one of the, one of the prophets puts it really, really well. It says there's a veil, it's Isaiah he says there's a veil over mankind. It's a veil of sin and death. Because of their actions, because of the actions of humanity, they're actually further and further away from God. And the further they get from God, the more difficult it is to be righteous. So there's just this like cycle of, uh, they call it the cycle of apostasy. There's just the cycle of it getting worse and worse and worse and worse because they need God. They need to be connected to God to be alive and to cultivate life. They need to be connected to God to be righteous and be good. But because they're not righteous, they can't be connected to God. So it's like this weird catch-22. Like they're in this weird cycle that's just worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and worse because they are, there's a veil over them, and it's what's called the curse of sin and death. And you feel this. Every day when you wake up, you feel this every day. It's this drive in you to satisfy the self. It's this drive in you to care about me first. It's this drive in you to care about me and my desires above God and his desires. One of the hymnists, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You know that song? It's like, it's like prone to wander, like I'm prone to wander. Everything in me wants to leave God, and it's this veil of sin and death that exists over mankind. And it's the actions of mankind. Nothing that mankind can do can fix that, because the only way they can fix that is to be connected with their God again. They can't be connected with their God because they continually do unrighteous things, and God is just. And he's like, no. No, no, you turn from me, you turn from me, and this is what happens. And so the whole book of the Old, like all the books in the Old Testament are just everywhere you're going to see these allusions to the Messiah. It's bad now, Messiah is coming. It's bad now, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. It's all the way to Malachi, then Matthew 1. You're getting the entrance of Messiah. You're getting the entrance of Jesus. You're getting the fulfillment of Genesis 12. The seed of Abraham who will bless the entire world. And he blesses the entire world by dying for the sins of humanity. So now the veil that separated men from God has been removed because that veil was made up of all of the unrighteous deeds that we do that cuts us off from a perfect father. So Jesus comes and he's perfect and he says, I'll take that punishment to remove that veil. I'll take that punishment. That'll go on me. I will receive all of the punishment that you deserve. I'll let my righteous father punish me instead of you. All you have to do is believe in that. And if you believe in that, if you believe in that, it's not, it is, but it's not primarily heaven. It's primarily You are now back in the people of God who can be alive with God and who can then cultivate life wherever they go, right? So think about that in those terms. So all the good things you know you're supposed to do as a Christian, that all centers around this idea of us being life-giving presences, us being the salt, us being the light of the world, right? Right. So that's what I mean when I say cultivate life wherever we go. I'm talking about the good deeds that the Bible talks about, not these have your quiet time. Be nice to people. Blah, 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 week, Weak, weak, weak stuff that we're like, okay, this is sort of what I'm supposed to do because I got saved or whatever. Okay, so the whole time from Genesis 3, what's been going on is that God has been pursuing man. He's been pursuing man so that he can do what he's always been wanting to do. People of God who are alive with God and who cultivate life wherever they go. That's been, the, that's been the thing from the beginning. It's going to be the thing all the way to the end, right? So when I talk about a robust view of what God is doing in history and how you as a believer are caught into that, that's what I mean by that. So it's not Jesus died on the cross to save me from hell, so yay, I'm not going to hell. Now what do I do, just sort of walk around and try to be nice to people? No, 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 no. See, what's happened is Jesus accepted the punishment for you so you could be brought into the family of God, so you could be brought into a people of God. So this was never about you. This has always been about us. This has always been about us. It'll never be just about you. So when the guy says, like, hey, if you, you're the only one on the earth, okay, well, that's completely ripped out of the story of the, of the Bible, so I don't even know what God would do if I was the only person on earth. That would be weird. I it's just a, a ridiculous statement. The fact is, is that we are all the people of God called to be alive with God, and that's going to be the big question when we get to the end of this. Do you feel alive? Do you experience life, or do you experience survival? Do you experience life? This is, it, read John. That's what we've been reading over and over and over and over and over again. God, He's talking about life. You need to have life. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and by believing, you have life in His name. This has always been about life. So. The question we're going to get to is, do you feel alive with God? Is that there? Because what, where this has been going, what it's always been, is that you would be a people of God, us, who are alive with God, are we? And if you're not alive with God, like we learned last week, you can't love unless you've been loved. You can't serve unless you've been served. You can't forgive unless you've been forgiven. You can't cultivate life until you are alive. So this has always been about what God is doing for humanity, and then our response to that is just our response to that. So that's a big question, right? Okay, so let's read the text now, and then hopefully, with that in mind, this can make a a little bit more sense, right? Okay, so uh, Genesis, uh, John fourteen. Even now, I want to talk about Genesis again. Okay, John fourteen, start in verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The, the narrative has taken a turn, and we talked about this turn that the narrative took last week. Uh, this has gone to where Jesus is now comforting his disciples. So if you remember what happened last week, we, we, lo- we looked at the story of Jesus telling his disciples, uh, one of you is going to betray me and have me killed. The rest of you are just going to sort of scatter. And then Peter, "Man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you into death. I'll die for you. And, and Jesus is like, Peter, actually because I know everything, and that's probably very frustrating for you. Uh, before the rooster crows tonight, you are going to deny me three times to a little girl by a fire. He didn't say that, but that's actually what happens. The little girl by a fire is like, hey, you're one of his disciples. And Peter's like, no, I'm not. Three times. So then he tells them all that, and then he says, I'm leaving to a place you can't go. And then he says this, let not your hearts be troubled in my Father's house. There's many rooms, right, right, right. Okay, so uh, you can see why he's saying don't let your hearts be troubled. So th- this is where I want to drop in and take what we just talked about, that expansive view of salvation, and let it deconstruct how we view this text. So how we view this text is this. Uh, the Father's house is heaven. I'm sorry, the Father's house is heaven. So what he's saying is I'm going to go to a place and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Um, and my father's house has many rooms And if you grew up reading the KJV You're more off than the rest of us I'm sorry uh, Because the KJV actually doesn't say rooms It says mansions uh, So we have this uh, view And if you listen to country music It's all over the place Even Tupac did a song about this uh, Thug Mansion That's what it was Right? Um, so, sorry I did listen to Tupac quite a bit So, uh, anyway but we have this view across American culture that what happens when we die is we go to a place called heaven where there are mansions for us. Now, country music and Tupac and some other ones, they believe you can basically do whatever you want and you'll still get a mansion. But the rest of us are like, no, 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 you can't do whatever you want. you got to ask Jesus into your heart. And if you do that, then, then you get the mansions. Uh, and so we've taken this view uh, th- that uh, Jesus right now is doing this. Uh, In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So what we feel like is that Jesus died on a cross, and since we're all getting separate but equal mansions, he's just taking so long to come back because he's building us like nice, handcrafted, equal, they're all going to be equal, Mansions. And that we will be there not with bodies, with spirits. So if you've ever thought about heaven, probably what you've thought is there's streets of gold, mansion, mansion row. I'm a spirit. I ride around on a cloud, right? I float around. And then people tell you, like, you're just going to worship God all the time. And if some of you are honest, you're like, I don't want to sing songs forever. <laughs> like, I know a lot of you think that, and that's fine. I know y'all think that. Uh, but then, then that's it. And it's like, so Jesus died on the cross for that? That's what it is. And there's a thousand problems with that. I'm not going to tell you all the problems. But I'll tell you a couple of them. Um, one of the problems is, is of course, the Bible, uh, because what the Bible is telling us is that we are awaiting resurrection. We're not awaiting heaven. That's what the Bible's telling us. The Bible's saying, especially in Revelation, it's like, okay, Jesus is going to return. He's going to set the world right. There's not going to be pain or tears or crying anymore. We are going to have bodies and we're going to live on the earth. And actually, what Revelation says is that heaven comes to earth. The New Jerusalem comes out of heaven to the earth. And then God literally says in Revelation 21, I'm going to be with my people, they're going to be with me, I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people. Like, he's driving this in. This has been about me creating a people. And you're also going to see, all the nations of the earth will be gathered together. So going to be people from every single nation who are in the family of God, and they're in the family of God because they're in Christ. And so, in Christ... All the nations of the earth are blessed. Genesis 12, the seed of Abraham. All the nations are there gathered. Not just the Israelites, all the nations, and they are worshiping God. And then if you read earlier in Revelation, you're actually seeing people in heaven wishing that they weren't in heaven. And that's a little strong. They're not like, oh, this place is terrible. But they are waiting for the culmination of everything. You're seeing the saints in heaven be like... Jesus, when are you going to go return and put everything right, and we're going to be resurrected in our bodies again, and then we're going to live in the eternal state with bodies, resurrected, not in heaven, riding clouds on mansions. So so we've got to take what the Bible says and compare it to what, what this is saying. What this is saying is not you're going to get some sweet mansions and you're going to die and go to heaven. Heaven is there. There's an, I'm not saying that heaven's not there. Heaven is a temporary state until the Lord returns. And when the Lord returns, we who have believed in Christ and those who have not believed in Christ will be resurrected for a judgment. And then that judgment's going to happen. And some that separate the lambs from the goats. That's scary. Uh, I don't want to be a goat. I'm always the only going to be a lamb. That's weird, also. But anyway, uh, so separating the lambs from the goats, and then here comes Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven to the earth, and humans live in the physical realm, but it's free from the corruption of sin. The veil is removed. God is with his people. His people are with him. So the same thing he was doing at the beginning, he's completing in the end. It's not like he gave up on the plan to have a people of God who are alive and who cultivate life on the earth. That was never given up. It's not like he's like, oh, Israelites, let's just change course. Here comes Jesus and we'll go to heaven. Like that's completely false and shallow. It's not what's going on. That's not what's going on. So l- let's, let's read this real quick. I'll give you a better interpretation, and then we'll move along. Sorry, my, my shin itches. All right, so um, I'm trying not to keep you guys forever. I'm really trying. Um, so, okay, let's get to it. Uh, better interpretation. F- this is wedding language. And I know most of you are versed in first century... Judean wedding customs. So this should have been obvious to you. Um, Jesus is making himself the groom and his people are his bride. And he's going to make a place in the father's household. So when I say this is wedding language, this is what I mean. Uh, In first century Judea, the way that weddings would work is that a man would go and he would find a wife. And there's different ways that they found wives. Sometimes they would buy them weird I don't know but it worked uh they would they would secure a wife and then he would tell the wife I'm going to my father's house and I'm going to add a room it's called a mitzvah I'm going to add a room so the place so this it wasn't it's not like us where you get married and then you leave your parents like 2,000 miles away and you're like, I'm so glad I don't have to live with him anymore and then you start your own little life. No, in, in in Jewish culture, the man would go secure a wife and then he would say, we're not getting married until I've prepared a place in my father's house. He would go to his father's house and he would prepare a room called a mitzvah and then when that room was prepared, he would get his boys and they would have trumpets, the shofar is what it's called, and they would have this little feastal thing and they would blow their trumpets and i'm not going to do the trump then holman i'm not going to do i will so they'll blow these trumpets and then they blow them and they're going to get the bride and they get the bride and they bring the bride back to the father's house they bring the bride to the father's house and there is a wedding feast so if y'all know revelation you know what i'm talking about the wedding feast of the lamb It's his revelation that Jesus returns to get his bride, the church. Upon receiving his bride, the church, the church being all the Christians in the world, he gets his bride, the church, from every nation, spotless, washed in his blood. He gets them, brings them to his father's house. So I want you to notice something the text says that's really important. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to... What does it say? To myself. I'm going to go to prepare a place, and I'm going to take you to myself. I'm not going to prepare a place and then take you to your mansion, and then I'll swing by every couple of years and we can chat. I'm taking you to myself. It's his complete wedding. So when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he's preparing a place in the Father's house. How does he prepare a place in the Father's house? He dies on a cross. So when he goes to the cross, he's actually able to remove the veil that exists between men and God. Upon removing that veil, upon sacrificing himself for the sins of men, men can now approach God in Christ, washed clean by the blood of Jesus, clothed in his righteousness, clothed in his good deeds, his perfect life, so the Father sees them you are my son, you are my daughter, you have a place in my household because your husband you have his name, you have his righteousness, you have his life, and you are brought into the family. So when he says to prepare a place, he's not saying I'm going to prepare a house. I'm going to prepare room in my father's house. I'm, I'm in his household. I'm going to prepare room for adoption so that upon believing in Jesus, you are adopted into the family of God. You are now a people of God. And now that you're a people of God, you can be with God. And with God, you can become alive. So you go from survival and God begins to deal with all of the stuff inside he begins to deal with all those selfish tendencies all of that crap that you've held on to all of the brokenness he begins to teach you to forgive yourself and forgive the people who have wronged you and in doing that he is making you more alive and as you become more and more alive you're able to cultivate life better and better so he's just doing everything that he's been doing you feel me follow me there okay So so when I say salvation, that's what we mean. We've been adopted, and we're going to be saved. We always talk about saved in the past tense, and the Bible does that sometimes. But most of the time, it's talking about saved in the future tense. You've been adopted. You've been adopted into the family of God, and then when Jesus returns to set everything right, you're going to be saved from that. Because that's going to be crazy. I'm not going to tell you that because I don't want to run you off, but please read Revelation. Maybe I'll write a blog Josh would like me to write a blog anyway Um, anyway so yeah uh, so uh, take you to myself we hit that okay this is important through believing in Jesus we are brought into the family into the household of God and then Romans 8 nothing can separate us from the father Nothing, nothing can, so, so I want to say this, so yes, this is pointing to the ultimate recreation of all things where God comes and dwells with us perfectly, no more crying, no more sin, no more tears anymore, here we are with God. Okay, but it's also talking about uh, heaven, where we go to wait until that happens. So can anything separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No, not death. Death cannot separate us because when I die, yes, I go to be with God until Jesus returns. I'm resurrected and I live with God in the eternal state. It's about that. It's also about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So if you're going to read on what we're going to be doing Thankfully, we're going to be reading the rest of John 14 over the next couple weeks. It's about the coming Holy Spirit. So when, when God says, I'm going to be with you, he's like, it's the real deal. G- we're going to, if we die, we go to heaven to be with God until he returns. But even while we're alive on the earth, Jesus is saying, it's better if I leave because the Holy Spirit comes. And with the Holy Spirit, you are with God. Holy Spirit is God who dwells in you and among us. So when we meet together and worship and pray and cry out for God, it's actually the Holy Spirit. So it says it's like we're a bunch of stones and the Holy Spirit resides in this house of us and the Holy Spirit comes and moves and does crazy awesome things. And here's the Holy Spirit, God with us, doing what God has been wanting to do the whole time. Be with us, make us alive so we can cultivate life, right? That 's all we've been called to do, super simple, super simple, and really beautiful so let's 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 jump in let's land the plane very quickly um, i want I want to land on this uh, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me so so if, if we 're understanding that coming to the Father means all of those things. Uh, Why is it, here's an important question, why is it that you have accepted Jesus into your heart and life is not the experience of your life? That's a huge question we need to answer because if Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and you say, yes, I agree with that, you're the way, the truth, and the life, you're the only way back to the Father, okay, then I would turn and ask you again, is life something you experience? And when I say life, I mean joy instead of anxiety, peace instead of anger, Uh, forgiveness instead of anger. You know what I'm saying. I'm not talking about just surviving. I'm not just talking about you plugging away until the Lord takes you home. That's not our home. This is our home. Uh, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is, are you alive now? Are you beginning to become alive? Is relationship with Jesus so compelling? Is the Holy Spirit so active that life is the experience of your life? And if you would say, "Uh, I don't think so. I would probably say to you, I can't fix that from the stage. Uh, That takes a group of people who know you and love you. It takes discipleship. It takes community. So if you would say that, I'm always going to push you into Okay, you need to get a group of people around you. We have these community groups, and you can do one here. I know several other churches in town that do groups really well. BSM, Fred Hill, FBC, they, they do groups well. So I don't care if you do it here. I just care you do it somewhere. Uh, so that you would be in a part of a community where you can open up and they can feed you truth, right? Okay, so if you would say that's the case, life is not something I experience, then I would say you need to say that. You really need to say that to somebody. And if there are some real things from your past you need to deal with, then a group like that may not even be the answer. That would be really helpful. You probably need some, like, one-on-one, one-on-two time with some people who can really feed into you. Like, that's real discipleship. Like, you, you're going to need that. Uh, there's no way out aside from that. You don't come here and let me yell at you, and then you walk away, and you're like, I'm feeling so much better now. Um, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, there's limits to this. So... Uh, I just want to say something in a practical way before we move on. If life is not the experience of your life, uh, I would point back to the text and say, think about this. Uh, He says, I am the way, I am the truth. So Jesus is not saying, I know the way and I know the truth. He's saying, I am the way, so I am the way back to the Father. He's not saying, I know some things you can do to get there. He's saying, believe in me, I'll take you there. Okay, so he's saying I embody that way. I embody that truth. I am the essence of truth. I am truth. Okay, so I want to I say something. I want to take that idea and apply that. If you don't experience life, it's because you may do one of two things. You may be really good at walking in the way of Jesus, but it's not in conformity to the truth revealed in Scripture. Or... You may be really good at truth. You know some theology and you know some, like, doctrine, but you don't walk in the way that Jesus walked. And again, there will be no life. So it's really easy to do one of those. I think one of those comes really natural. I'm a truth person myself. Most of my Christian life was me studying theology and reading good things and being like, oh, this is good, and it feeds my brain, but I'm literally dying inside. I feel no life, no freedom, no forgiveness, no love. uh, That experience isn't there. Really good at truth, but not really good at walking in the way. And so what do I mean by walking in the way? I mean this very thing. What Jesus did when he was on the earth, submitted himself to the Father and was led by the Spirit everywhere that he went and did everything that the Father willed him to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. When I say walking in the way of Jesus, I mean that very thing. I don't mean wearing a WWJD bracelet and thinking about what would Jesus do uh, at a frat party? Uh, well, he would have two beers only. Uh, he would try to engage in a spiritual conversation. I, I, okay, I don't know, right? What I do know is that Jesus expects the same thing from us. You, you can submit yourself to the will of the Father and learn, learn. It is a learning process, but it happens and it's beautiful. Learn to live your life by the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. First to deal with all this stuff, and then to begin to cultivate life. So that's all Jesus did. Submitted himself to the will of the Father, and the Holy Spirit led and guided and empowered everything that he did. Jesus actually said, you'll do greater things than me because of the Holy Spirit. I believe Jesus did everything that he did because he was filled with the Spirit and not because he was a God. Okay? Okay? So you're going to see Peter doing the same miracles that Jesus did in the book of Acts. You're even going to see him raising somebody from the dead. Weird. okay? Because we're like, oh, Jesus did that because he was God. No, Jesus did that because he was filled with the Spirit. So when I say walk in the way, that's what I mean. Submitted to the will of the Father. You can lead everything in Holy Spirit. Show me what that is. Walk me day to day. I give you everything. That's what I mean by walking in the way. So you can know theology and doctrine, and you can know philosophy and all this great stuff but you haven't submitted yourself to the spirit and you're allowing the spirit to convey the love of the father and the authority of the son to you consistently okay or you might be pretty good at walking in the way you might be pretty good at like okay i'm gonna try to do this jesus thing but it's not at all in conformity to truth so you're like me and jesus got an understanding and everything's cool i know he loves me that's why i can get wasted like six or seven times a month that's it right So you walk according to this way where you do receive love and you know that God forgives you and Jesus forgives you, but you don't do it according to truth. Truth is important. The way is important. And so I would just say as we land the plane, if life is not the experience of your life, perhaps there's no submission to the Lord and no spirit in your life. Or perhaps you haven't learned how to stand in the truth. You haven't learned to stand against the lies that are coming at you from this world being one of them, the demonic realm and your flesh have some other lies that they come up with themselves, lies that say, you've got to do this to be accepted. You've got to look like this to be accepted. You've got to go to these parties to be accepted. You've got to dress like this and act like this and do this and do this and do this. And so you're constantly chasing the acceptance wheel. You're running that acceptance wheel. And that's just one of them. So when I say stand in the truth, I mean standing in the belief that I am in Christ My Father accepts me. He loves me. The blood of Jesus has cleansed me from my past, from my future. I'm going to make mistakes, but that's forgiven. But I'm submitting myself to the Lord, and I'm letting that lead and guide. Holy Spirit, you have power and control in my life, and I'm resisting the lies that tell me that I'm not good enough, that I'm not smart enough, that I need your acceptance and not his acceptance. Like, I'm resisting those lies. I'm standing in truth. Feel me? So if life is not there I would say consider that, but I would say consider that in the context of a small group or a discipleship sort of thing, both of which we can help you out. So uh, that was a a ton. I'm trying to get my sermons down to 35 minutes. It's not funny. I really am. Uh, We're going to get there. We really are.